Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you've decided to join us either for the first time or once again. Well, we're coming near the end of summer. I can't even believe I'm saying that. And actually, this is the last in our summer series. Now, I'm going to go all the way back to week one. Do you remember this? Maybe you don't. Let me help you again. We took time reflecting on these questions. Where do we really need to be encouraged over the summer, personally, and also as Sanctus Church as a whole? Where could we share the good news of Jesus every single week, and at the same time, provide fresh vision around the need and the power of hospitality? In other words, the recalling of us back to be with other people in Jesus' name. And then it just came. It was so obvious, so simple, so life-giving. Jesus' meals with sinners and with saints and everyone in between tied all of these invitations and commands together. But today's going to be different. Unlike, I think, all the other meals we looked at this summer that we listened into, that we sat alongside and sat in, this last meal is actually one where Jesus does not invite someone to get to know him, does not invite someone to uh, see who he is or, or know his identity. This meal, this breakfast is different. This is the place where rebuilding and restoring takes place with someone who already knows Jesus more than most. And again, Jesus is going to help this person. And if you think about it, this is sort of midpoint in their own journey with Jesus, which many of you are at and in. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, actually, I was at Uh, at a camp, and I was doing some staff training in and around spiritual gifts and spiritual disciplines and also praying with some senior leaders, and it was a great, amazing time, such a privilege to be there. And where I was staying is in sort of like this motel experience, two levels. I think there's like five or six rooms on each level, and then the stairs are to the outside. And when I arrived, I remember uh, walking up the stairs to go to my room, and at the very top stair, remember, these are exposed on the outside, not inside, there was a robin's uh, nest. And the mum flew away, and in that little beautiful, perfectly constructed nest were three robin's eggs. And I love robin eggs. They're beautiful, and their color's awesome. But I remember thinking, why in the world would this robin, this mum, build this amazing nest in the wrong place? I mean, it's literally on a top stair. I'm walking by it, and if I can walk by it, of course, predators can get to this. Well, every day I walked by, and the mum would fly away, and the eggs were there. And then one day, one egg disappeared. The next day, one of the babies was born, and it was there for two days, and then when I walked by, it was gone. And then by the second last day, the last egg was gone, and actually the mom was gone too. She built the right thing in the wrong place, which exposed her actually to danger and destruction. She, she built the right thing, a beautiful thing, a, an amazing thing, a, actually a life-giving thing, but did it in the wrong environment. And actually, that's what Jesus is doing in this conversation. He's going to make sure that what's taking place in this person's life is going to be built not just correctly, but it's going to be built on the right thing, in the right place, with the right person. Our story uh, begins like this. This is right after Jesus has risen from the dead. There have been about six post-resurrection encounters Hope is growing again. It's like light is growing stronger and stronger. Jesus continues to meet and assure and give faith and build this small band of people that, of course, are going to become his hands, his feet, his representatives, the one that are going to continue to bring the kingdom of God to the whole world. The very high highs and low lows and trauma 
of Good Friday and the joy of Easter have taken their toll. At this moment, some of the disciples, some of the inner core, have moved back north, home to Galilee, to take time to think, to recuperate from the whirlwind of events. Fishing, back to fishing. They need to eat, work, and just get into known routine again. Sound familiar, everyone? Like the last two and a half years for us? So there's water, and there's sky, and there's wind, and there's fishing, and there's good labor, and there's just rest at the end of the day. Now, into all of that new, old routine, Jesus appears once again, and they don't know it's him at the beginning. They're fishing, and then Jesus comes along and says, hey, uh, how many fish have you caught? And they say, it's actually been a really bad day. We've weirdly caught no fish. And then it says in John 21, 6, throw your net on the other side, Jesus says, and you'll find some. And when they did it, they were unable to haul the net in because of a large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's Jesus. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He had taken it off because he was fishing and it was hot, I'm sure, and he jumps in the water and starts swimming towards Jesus. Okay, now, this part of the story comes to an end on a beach. Jesus is there, and Thomas is there, and John and Peter and two others, and it's breakfast. It says in John 21.10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. There was 153 fish. Wow. There was so many, but the nets weren't torn. Jesus said to them, Come have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, uh, who are you? They, they knew it was Jesus. So Jesus came, took bread, gave it to them, and did the same with fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus appeared to these disciples after he was raised from the dead. So breakfast was good, but it means so much more. I, I just want to remind you. This again proves Jesus physically is risen from the dead. He's holding things, he's eating things, they're touching him. He's not a ghost, this is real. And at this breakfast, there's hope. And at this breakfast, there is community. And along with really good fresh bread and fish, resurrection is being proved right over these hot coals. But Jesus was not showing up to do the same thing once again. See, there's a specific intention here. Last time it was Thomas. Doubt, pain, struggle, and Jesus, remember, providentially steps in before it turned into jaded unbelief. As Jesus had brought Thomas out of hopelessness, that all-consuming sort of hole of doubt. Now, Jesus turns his eyes to Peter to save him from something else, to save him from deep sadness, to save him from deep despondency, from an open wound that actually, if it is not addressed, would not only lead to self-hate, but actually would lead him later as a leader to crash, and even more serious, to lead much of the whole Christian movement to crash. I just want to stop there and say this. What Jesus does over this breakfast, he does it because he loves Peter personally and deeply, but he also loves the whole church. You can't divorce these two things. They're intertwined. Now, I'm sure Peter knew the conversation was coming, but I actually don't think he knew which way this was going to go. Peter is like some of us, many, many of us, who started with Jesus a long time ago, and we want to keep going, but we're struggling to find our way back after such traumatic events. I just want to pause and say, have you ever thought of Peter's life? How he was the loudest, the most committed, the most powerful, and then, of course, he crashes and burns in the most public of ways. Now, it's Peter that always went first. Do you remember Peter's incredible, God-given insight, like confession, 
Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what are people saying about me? Some say, ah, they think you're John the Baptist. Others say, no, no, you're Elijah. Other people think you're Jeremiah. No, 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 you're, others say you're one of the prophets. But, but what about you, Jesus says? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, of course, answered. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Whoa. Jesus re- replies like this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by humans, by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are now Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So, okay, catch this. Peter, this leader, the one that God chose to help the world, he's the first one to fully understand Jesus, his identity. And Jesus says it wasn't even his own intellect. God himself chose for Peter to understand. Oh, and Peter was there at all the miracles. Think about it. Water to wine, yep. Feeding of the 5,000, yep. Feeding of the 4,000, yep. Dealing with demons, absolutely. The Sermon on the Mount, yeah, he was there for that. The transfiguration, I've preached this before. Let me just do it again. Peter, James, and John saw more than any Jew had in history. When Jesus took them out uh, up on that Mount of Transfiguration, just remember this. Jesus gets glorified. He's the Messiah, right? He's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. faith. There's the literal presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. You've got God the Father's voice. You've got Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great miracle worker, all in one space. And he's a Jewish man seeing, like, no one has seen this. This is it. And he's in the inner circle. And yet, he's also the one that will publicly fall and most painfully reject Jesus. Just after the Passover, what we now call the Lord's Supper, remember what Jesus said straight up to him? Mark fourteen thirty. I tell you the truth. Jesus said today, yes, actually, tonight. Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, Peter, will disown me, not once, not twice, three times. And Peter uh, insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I will die for you. I'll I'll never disown you. I'm I'm not going to cancel you. (laughs) Look at me, Jesus. Look at how committed I am. Look what I've already given up for you. Look what I've done. Remember what I said about you. Remember what you said about me. You know my new name. You know what God's promises are in my life. Like, look at me, look at me, look at me. But most of us, not maybe all of us, know the story. It did end with Peter falling. His boastful expressions didn't work. The sobering words of Jesus come painfully true. And during Jesus' mock trials at the last moment, it all comes down to this. Mark fourteen seventy. After a little while, those standing near Peter said to him, Ah, surely you're one of those people. You're, one of the, you're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Peter says, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I, I've never understood or known this guy. What are you talking about? And if I am a follower, and by the way, we missed this. I preached this a few years ago, but let me do it again. He says, listen, I curse myself. And not only that, if you keep accusing me of this, I'm going to curse you too. But what we don't actually catch here is in the original language, there's almost this sense that Jesus is being cursed by Peter. It's like him saying, may God the Father damn Jesus or damn you or damn me. I don't know what you're talking about. And let me read it again slowly. I don't know this man. 
I don't know if you've ever caught this. He can't even bring himself to say Jesus' name a few hours later. Well, as those rash words left his mouth, like maybe awakening from a never-ending nightmare, Peter falls apart. It says in Luke, uh, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. Right in that moment, right in that moment, as Jesus is in the middle of these mock trials and and Peter's in the courtyard, Jesus looks right at him. Peter throws himself to the ground, pulling his cloak over his head. This is what I imagine. He begins to weep, beat himself. This is the deepest form of betrayal. Like, this has the same power as an extramarital affair. Like, all trust broken. There's very little hope of recovery. So you need to hear all of that or rehear all of that to know the real story, to understand what Jesus is about to do over this breakfast. See, none of this had gone away. Oh, this is important. Yes, yes. <laughs> Jesus is physically risen from the dead. The world's not the same. Incredible. Yes, peace declared. Hope declared. Joy. Death doesn't win anymore. Like all these incredible, amazing things are all true. But every single time Peter sat down with Jesus, risen from the dead, all this, still on the table. All this, still in his heart. All this, not resolved. This was deeply anchored in the soul of Peter's psyche, in his conscience. He couldn't remove all this stuff. He'd been so weak. His emotions had betrayed him. And by the way, I guarantee self-hate, anger, despair, shame, guilt is mixed with joy, hope, and salvation. Oh, let me say that again. This guy's full of self-hate, anger, despair, shame, guilt and joyful, and hopeful, and he knows he's saved. Sound like maybe you or someone you know? Well, Jesus is risen. They're having breakfast. And at this breakfast, everything's going to change. Back to John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, uh, do you love me more than these? Now, I've shared this before. Do you notice at almost every single meal, Jesus asks these very cornering, uh, <laughs> wild questions? Like, I, I think I used the illustration a month or two ago. It's like Jesus' questions don't go away. They're like cigarette smoke. Once they're in the air, they just sit. You can't escape it. I'm sure the question probably had a physical effect on Peter. His mind would start recalling, his stomach, butterflies. Maybe his eyes were on the ground. Maybe he held back tears. I don't know. But as they're walking, it would seem... He says, Simon, son of John. Oh, (laughs) it's all in the name. He doesn't call him Peter. He actually calls him the name he had before his heaven-given profession, before he was called Rock. Now, why? Because Peter had not been his namesake. He had been foolish. He had been heroic for a moment. He had been cowardly, blasphemous, crushed. This impulsive zeal has been broken. So Simon was his name before Peter. And it's interesting. Jesus chooses to ask, to use this name, not to humiliate Peter, but to heal him. Now Simon, you might not know this, comes from the same name Simeon. And the word Simeon, what it means, the name Simeon means to hear, hearken, and heed, old English words. Let me do it a different way. It's to hear, listen, and act. 
That's actually what the, the name means. Now, this is profound because Jesus chooses to ask him this because he knows that Peter's about to hear. Watch this. And then, G, then Peter's going to listen, and then Peter's going to act. I love this. Jesus is literally in this moment redeeming the Simon side of him and the Peter side of him. I'm going to combine them together. Okay, so Jesus chooses to address Simon Peter's deepest wound. But never forget, this is so important, that during this very painful, critical moment, if Jesus was not Jesus, if Jesus was not love, if Jesus' very DNA was not patience and kindness, man, this would end terribly. But this is agape love, God-given love in action. Remember, the description of God's love is in 1 Corinthians 13. So I wrote this years ago. Let me use it again. Since Jesus does not envy, and since Jesus does not boast, and since Jesus is not proud, And since Jesus does not dishonor other people, and since Jesus is not self-seeking, and since Jesus is never easily angered, and since Jesus keeps no record of wrongs, and since Jesus doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, and since Jesus always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres, it's okay that he confronts Peter, and it's okay that he confronts us. It's amazing that Jesus comes into our sin, into our brokenness, and into our deepest regrets. It's okay to trust Jesus with the most tender and broken parts of us. Why? Because he confronts to restore. And he's not compromised in any way by sin. And since Jesus is not cruel, this coming act is love. Humble? Yes. Restoring? Yes. Humiliation? Ruin? No. So the question, let me bring it back. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus surfaces everything. Do you love me more than your fishing? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your name? Do you love me more than your other name? Do you love me more than the others that are around you? Do you love me more than your pride? Do you love me more than your self-sufficiency? Do you love me more than your deep failure? Do you love me more? Love. Such a profound, important word. Such a profound and important experience. Now, we know, sitting here in 2022 in Canada, love has been hijacked. Love can mean so much or so little. It's been reduced down to personal choice or view or one-night stands or what I feel in the moment. But the Bible's clear about love. It's agape love. It's 1 Corinthians. It's an action. And it's interesting. Jesus uses God love, agape love, here. Not friendship love, not sexual love. DNA God love. So when Jesus asked Peter the question, this is what Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me with God perfect love? Do you do this? Do you agape me more than these? Now, I love how Peter responds. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But this is how it reads in the original language. Yes, Lord, I phileo you, not I agape you. Yes, Lord, I have deep, deep friendship affection for you. Not, I have God perfect love for you. How could he do this? How could he say honestly to Jesus, yeah, 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 I've got perfect God-given love for you. He's like, I can't say that. I have a deep personal attachment to you, but my love is not what you are asking. And notice what Jesus does. I love this. He accepts Peter, accepts his, his reduced version of love, and commissions him anyway. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Serve me by serving others. But then Jesus brings it up again. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you perfect God love me? Drop all your agendas, all your dreams, all your comparisons. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Verse 16, you know that I love you. But he says, yes, Lord, I have deep affection for you. Peter will not go all the way. And yet Jesus warmly says, okay, I'm going to use you. Take care of my sheep. See, each single time Jesus commissions him, he's affirming him, saying he's still going to use, this is so important, he's still going to use Peter despite his deepest sin and failure. Each time Jesus does this question, it brings up everything. Nothing remains hidden when you meet the risen and exalted Christ. Each word brings up pain that produces healing. Each word brings truth, mercy, grace, and undeserved trust. As Peter sways between emotional failure and forgiveness, I'm sure he thinks, finally, finally, this conversation is going to come to an end, but it's not. Just when we think Jesus is done, or that the sin conversation is exhausted, or the pain conversation, you know, the therapy session's over, it's 60 minutes and we're done, Jesus says, actually, there's more to deal with. Jesus, full of power and gentleness, speaks again, examines again, and it's almost like he moves closer into Peter's space. A third time, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Jesus changes the question. <laughs> it's not, Peter, do you agape me? He actually says, Peter, do you friendship me? He uses the word that Peter's now been using. So, so do you have affection for me that you even claim? Jesus, like a surgeon, is digging deeper and deeper to the root of the issue. First, he tests the quality of Peter's love, and of course, it's found wanting. And then he asks Peter this question, and what he's really getting at is, do you love me in any form? Well, Peter was hurt, because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Peter says in response, Lord, you you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus once again says, feed my sheep. It's like Peter says this, Jesus, you know. You know everything. You know my thoughts, my wants. I declare it as true. Why do you keep asking me? I do love you. And it's like Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, Peter, I know, I know what you think. But you need to know that I know that you love me and that actually I love you. Why? (laughs) Because this is always the foundation that will help you be faithful to my foundation, my will, and my movement. Let me say this again. If you do not know the full, overwhelming love of God and that he loves you back, you'll never obey him. You'll never call on him. You'll never follow him where God wants to take you because actually you will love him but not trust him. Watch this. Three times, Peter's love has been tested and it's been wanted. And it's really wild. Peter denies Jesus three times, and then Jesus asks him three questions. And then what's even more wild, my mentor years ago, Daryl Johnson, pointed this out, that all of the denials at the trials were done in front of a fire, and a coal fire, and now, wildly, all of the restoration three times happens in front of another coal fire. It's like Jesus is literally replaying the event in a different environment with the fire at the center to actually say, no, I'm redeeming everything. Three denials, three confessions, three commissions. Talk about the love of Jesus. It's that old hymn. Some of you might know it. Oh, oh, the deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. That's it. See, only when we see what Jesus 
has not only done for us through the cross historically, but what he continues to do in our current walk, would we and will we be willing to do anything maybe he asks? Only when Jesus comes close and makes us look upon the things we want to avoid, run from, pretend are not there. See, when Jesus shows up, he speaks, he clears, he cleans, he applies the power of the cross into everyday life. He challenges, he restores, and, and, and notice this. After Jesus restores Peter, after he gives him agape love for his friendship love, then Jesus says, well, the reason why we're talking about this is because i got to tell you what's about to happen. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. When you were young, Peter, you had your own way, you were independent, but a future time is coming where you're going to be old and sick and actually someone else is going to lead you And here's what he's really referencing. And actually, you're going to be crucified, Peter. You're going to die for me, just like I died for you. And in your death, others are going to find out. Jesus said this to indicate indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. And then he says it to him again, follow me. All right. Peter's now been restored. Peter's now been forgiven. He's, given, he's been given a new lease on life again, a new lease on ministry again, and he's already been told he's going to have a profound ministry for Jesus and even die for Jesus. All this is going to bring glory to God, and all of this is going to bring purpose. All of this is going to bring God's kingdom to earth. So his denials, his hot air are washed away by Jesus, his forgiveness, restoration. And after all of this, watch this, after faith and freedom and restoration and and resurrection power, the very first thing that Peter does restored is he sins. The very We're talking about seconds after all this epicness, right? This is what he does. That's why I love Peter. He's so human. Then Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was following them. That's John. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked Jesus, hey, what about him? (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Peter, after love, during the most powerful experience of restoration, probably in human history, falls back into trouble and either sins or doesn't embrace what Jesus has truly said and begins to compare himself to John. I love when one person said, personal failure usually leads to comparisons. Let me say that again. Personal failure tends to lead to comparisons. We either push other people down to feel less inferior, or we allow shame to bury us at the bottom of the world. Neither response is from God. Jesus said to Peter, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Peter, you follow me. Now, because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that that John would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He just said, if if I want him to remain alive till I return, what's that to you? Now, John would have a very different, I would say, a much more significant ministry than Peter. I mean, he moves to Ephesus. I don't know if you know this. He takes care of Jesus' mom. Like, he takes care of Mary. Not only that, he, reads, he writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Oh, and this little book at the end called the Book of Revelation. 
He authors all of that. And, by the way, becomes one of the most significant leaders preparing the next generation of Christian leaders. And he preaches about the love of God. And he confronts the first wave of those that call themselves Christian, but actually were not Christian because they started denying the humanness of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus. He takes on the Gnostics. He's the bulk word towards the growing spirit of Antichrist. And Peter's like, ah, and Jesus is like, don't do that. Don't even worry. Okay. That's a serious breakfast. (laughs) That's a serious breakfast. Now, why end our series here? Well, because this is a great place to end it. I don't know if you've caught this. This is the third time in the last 12 months this passage has come back up to our church. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is trying to say something. So number one, I just want to say this to you. If you are serious about walking with Jesus, then hear this out of the breakfast. You will never have a powerful and fruitful walk with Jesus unless you choose to welcome Jesus into everything. Every secret, every sin, every pain, everything. The way we move from Simon to Peter is when Jesus comes close and says, do you love me more? It's funny, years ago, uh, at our church when we were called C4, we did experience a very significant move of God for an extended period of time. And I remember one middle point, point of it when it really took off is when we used to pray a prayer like this. Uh, we used to say to the church, would you be willing to pray, God, you can do anything in my life for your glory, uh, for my freedom, so the world can see Jesus clearly. I just want to say it again. God, you can do anything you want in my life. Kids, they're yours. Home, yours. Reputation, yours. RSPs, yours. Uh, Dreams, yours. Like, you can do anything you want in my life for your glory and then my freedom so the world gets to see Jesus clearly. That, That was a way of saying, we invite Jesus to have the breakfast with us. What struck me is how many people, long term, in our church, committed people, came to me and said, I will never pray that prayer. I was like, why? And when we really got to the root of it, they kept saying, you're asking us to do too much. And I'm like, I'm not asking you anything. I mean, we're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. We want to become fully devoted followers. Like, we invite Jesus into everything. He owns everything. But they were terrified if they did it, Jesus would destroy them and not love them. There's not a pain in your life. There's not a secret in your life. There's not a sin in your life that Jesus doesn't already know about. Don't just love Jesus, trust him. Don't just friendship Jesus. Get closer than that. And I encourage you. One of the best things you could do is literally this week, write a list, a literal list of all your pain or your anger or situations or, and sit with Jesus and just say, even if you feel it's not working, Jesus, I invite you into this. I invite you into this sin. I invite you to help me with this. I invite you into this anger I have with my mom or my dad or my parents or my dreams were lost or just in my sickness. Like, just Invite him in. Remember, Peter's ministry after this was way more profound than it was before. Here's the second thing. You'll never suffer and sacrifice for Jesus unless you know how much you've been served. One of the most important prayers you can pray out of this sermon is, Lord, show me how much you've loved me. So, so many of us don't actually understand the 
massive extent of Jesus' historic and ongoing love. Maybe I could put it this way. Until you take sin seriously, you'll never know mercy seriously. But no, just ask Jesus to reveal his love. And here's the last thing. This is so important in our social social media-driven, crazy world. You'll never be effective for God's kingdom. And let me add something to this. You'll never have peace in the core of you, even as a Christian, unless you stop wanting to be someone else or comparing yourself to others. One of those beautiful things that Jesus does over this breakfast is he sets Peter free from leadership comparisons. He confronts immediately Peter's tendency to want to be John. One of the most beautiful things that our world needs to see is Christians that are satisfied with God's no. To find Christians that are satisfied and excited about what God has given them and what God hasn't. Because that doesn't exist in our world. Maybe the last thing you could pray or talk about in a connect group or wrestle through with a friend or spouse is, Lord, where am I obsessed or wanting something that you just haven't given me? Maybe on the other side of that could be such freedom. So I'm going to pray to end like this. I'm going to pray that Jesus has a lot of breakfast meetings over the next little while. And maybe some of this stuff gets reoriented out or oriented properly so we can be free, joyful, um, loved. And also, by the way, maybe just as a side note, as we get ready to go into this brand new year where lots up in the air and a lot at stake, probably this is going to help us as a church. So let's just pray this. Thanks, Jesus, that um, you don't leave things unresolved. And thanks, Jesus, that you are love. (laughs) So I'm just going to ask you, would you start showing up by your Holy Spirit to have multiple breakfast meetings across our church? Uh, Help many people to list, to trust, to be very direct with you about all the stuff, trauma, secrets, pain, questions, doubt. Would you walk into that? Help other people to know how much you love them, how much they have been loved, are loved, will be loved. And Lord... I just pray by your spirit you would walk into people's lives and say, I know you keep looking over here, but I want to set you free from that. I pray for the gift of peace and the the gift of joy in our church as comparison dies. Yeah, I just, I pray this boldly in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen.